Hey everybody, welcome to Studio HFL. I'm your host, Larry Powell, and I'm really glad you've chosen to spend some time with us today, tuning into today's show. Today's guest is Jeff Kerno, and this is show number HFL 89. This interview took place on July 21st, 2020, and you can find notes for this interview at studiohfl.com blog. You may have already listened to Jeff's first interview with me, and that was HFL 40. I came back to Jeff because I wanted to spend more time talking specifically about his time with the Empire Brass, and that's exactly what you're going to hear today. Of course, you can listen to these interviews on any podcast platform, but now you have the option to also watch them on the Studio HFL YouTube channel. You can help me get to 100 subscribers on the YouTube channel, and I can get a custom URL. You can also follow me on Facebook and Instagram, at Studio HFL. And if you really want to keep up on releases and get a heads up on other news, you can subscribe to the newsletter at StudioHFL.com. Now, here's a huge shout out to my Patreon patrons for their generous contributions to this program. You guys, your support shows me that there is real value to the work that I'm doing, and it's an encouragement financially, yes, but it's also an inspiration to continually strive to deliver a high-quality product. If you would like to be a part of the Studio HFL community, please visit www.patreon.com slash studiohfl. There are four tiers of support from which you can choose, and each has benefits for becoming a subscriber. Also, if you would take the opportunity to visit Apple Podcasts and leave both a star rating and a review, I would greatly appreciate that. Brass players can be kind of picky when it comes to cases, perhaps even more so than other musicians. If you have an idea for a custom case, then Messina Covers has your solution for completely custom case designs, even down to a wide variety of color schemes. Don't forget about options for mouthpiece pouches or pretty much anything you'd want to keep protected in a custom case. Check them out at MessinaCovers.net. If you're looking for excellence in trumpets, trombones, horns, and tubas, you need look no further than the Eastman Music Company. And S.E. Shires offers a complete line of brass instruments from the beginner all the way up to the professional. And you know, they are invested in creating a quality product when the Doc Severinsen helped design Eastman's beginner trumpet model. You can find out more at eastmanwins.com and seshires.com. Pickett Blackburn has established themselves as a top-tier resource for trumpet players and mouthpieces. If you haven't had a chance to try any mouthpieces available through Pickett or the incredible line of Blackbird trumpets, you can check them out at picketblackburn.com. And now, on to today's guest. One final question. Yes. Kernow, Kerno. It's Kerno. It is Kerno. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I honestly, I had oh, heard. It's uh, fine. So many different ways, but no, I, I want to know. No, so I know. thanks for clarifying and that. All my life, people say Kernow. I guess it looks that way, uh, but uh, but it, officially it's Kernow. Like okay. Kernow is composer. And so, now there's a CNN host, Robin Kernow. Oh. Yeah, she's on uh, CNN International, Robin Kernow. So, pretty cool. Well, you're famous by association then. Right. <laughs> so, all right. The high profile guys you're talking to, not me, but. No, well, come on. It'd be fair to yourself. Yeah. You're but, so high uh, profile, I came back for a second interview. See? This is... Well, that's your fault. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay. This, the reason I'm here again, I told you, we barely touched on Empire uh, the first time around. Right. And I feel guilty sometimes contacting somebody because of their connection with, like, I, ha- I want to be truly in, more interested in you than because you are not Empire, right? I mean, it's not who defines you. And I think I owe it to the people to give them a chance to say whatever they want to say. And then if we get to <laughs> right, that other stuff, we get there. And... Uh, so it, I thought, hey, can we talk about those years? Can we talk about... Uh... Absolutely. I mean, I'm very proud. It was hard. It's just the, the best of times and the worst of times. But I'm very proud of everything that we accomplished. And, uh, and I'd like to try to keep that alive um, for the sake of the integrity that we put into it. I mean, it was really all about making something that no one else had heard before at that time and going nuts. And, uh, and I think we achieved that. And so I'd like to remind people what the time was, you know, at that point, 
quintet scene and uh, just to check it out, you know, check out what was actually happening back then if they had it. So once again, it's like trying to stay relevant, trying to remember that point in history. Yeah. What year did you join them? I joined in 86. Or so, 87. It was, 80, it was 87. That's what it was. Yeah. Who did you replace? I replaced, they were, they, Tim left and they were looking, they were going through a couple of guys and, um, they weren't particularly happy with anybody. There, there wasn't a click. Mostly because of you know, dealing with Rolf. <laughs> Rolf, uh, you know, Rolf was, he was a, ter- a terrific talent, an unbelievable force when it came to, you know, drive ideas and where to, where to funnel the energy. And uh, with that came a bumpy ride. So mm-hmm. a lot of other players came in there. It seems to be other things to call the other company. Yeah. It's a difficult, it's a difficult position. You, you really have to, uh, there's a certain personality. You have to sit there and understand where your place is in the band and then, um, be able to work with that. So they hadn't found anybody. So I met Rolf at a summer festival called Harkness Park, which is in Connecticut. Dave Bilger and I used to play that. And they basically get New York freelancers up there. And I was working in and out of Connecticut. So I was playing with the New Haven Symphony, mm-hmm. playing some in New York. So Dave called me and said, hey, we got this big brass thing that we're going to set up on, on stage. And you can say a grotto style with Empire brass. And then we're going to you know, play a big brass on top of behind them and do these works with fireworks and mm-hmm. water music. So I said, sure. And that's where I met Rawl. He came up and said, hey, uh, you want to come up and audition for the band? Up to Boston. So I was like, yeah, sure. And, uh, and that's when it started. Mm-hmm. And I went to Boston for audition. Mm-hmm. And then I went Had you followed the group much before then? Not really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I was a, it was a Canadian and the Empire Brass. Those right. are two groups that were really uh, out there in the trenches mm-hmm. and I was more along the lines that the Canadians would come out with something that was like, I, was, I, I really wasn't even in the brass, but the Empire Brass I appreciated, I did hear of them yeah. and uh, and I knew Rolf of course and Sam mm-hmm. and so uh, I maybe had a couple of LPs but I was into doing all things with trumpet. That's what yeah. I was going to do. I was playing excerpts and wanting to take auditions. And this dropped in my lap, and all of a sudden, I'm impressed. Yeah. What was that audition like? <laughs> it was a little weird. <laughs> I mean, I went up on stage, and I played through uh, excerpts. And they, they wanted to hear that. I played an A2. I forget what A2 is. played a couple excerpts. And then... Uh, the five of them were out. It was a Boston University. The five of them were out in the audience. Mm-hmm. And Rolf came up on stage with his horn, and we played together. And it was actually, it wasn't bad. He was kind of joking around, and, and we were reading through some of the quintet stuff. And mm-hmm. He didn't want to play very much. He, he hated playing duets and things like that. So, but he just, they wanted to see if I could, if I could blend. Right. And they were coming up on a, on a pretty important tour. They were going to tour Russia. So they needed to put somebody in, you know, in the position. So, um, you know, they said after that, I guess maybe an hour. And they said, why don't you come up to Tanglewood and spend a week up there? And uh, that's where they were at the time. Mm-hmm. And play with the band, sit in, send me some charts. And, you know, so uh, I went. I drove up to uh, Stockbridge, Massachusetts, and I'm driving around looking for Rolf's place. And he has this beautiful house. He had this barn, renovated barn, and it's mm-hmm. a mile long. And it's just in this gorgeous spot that he bought when he was moving to. And I'm driving around looking for it. I have no idea. <laughs> I 
calling his house, leaving a message, no one cares. Rock, this is Jeff, I'm looking for your place of hoop and where you are. Mm-hmm. So I left. I spent oh an hour. I said, <laughs> All right, now I have my Empire Brass story. Yeah. I, I couldn't find nobody was I said, Maybe maybe this was a hoax. So I just turned around and went home. And I got a phone call like that night. And they said, Where were you? I said, I, I drove around, I left messages on the machine. Yeah, yeah, nobody was here, but did you drive back home? Yeah, we talked. Okay. And then I drove up the next day <laughs> again. And I was able to sit there and play with group for a week. Mm-hmm. And then I was hired. Mm-hmm. What um, was that? What was that first experience with sitting in that group? I, and I'm asking because, you know, I didn't even think about this until I was talking to Mark Reese and he told me about his first experience and how it was just like eye opening about yeah. things. I, so that's, I'm curious about your experience with that. Well, I, I played with a group. I was not in that mode. I was able to keep up. But at the time, I thought I was doing okay, but at the time, there were sound issues. I just wasn't blending. I didn't. There's a specific sound that that group had. It was forged basically by Rolf and Sam. And their concept was we're an orchestral brass, not a quintet that huddles together and plays, you know, at each other. We stand up, out front, and blow to the audience as if we're the brass that's in the orchestra. And that's mm-hmm. kind of sloppy. And I kind of was into this thing where, you know, moving around and playing and doing this, what Rolf would call the New York. <laughs> so we ended up, uh, I rehearsed for a week. It was, um, yeah, I opened it. I mean, you had to hit the ground running. Mm-hmm. The charts were hard. So I spent a lot of time practicing. Those guys would be hanging, but I'd be learning the book. And then we yeah. did a concert after a week. It was like a week and a half. And uh, Doug Sheldon was there. He was our connection with one of the artists. And he came up and said, yeah, it keeps sounds good. Yeah, it's great. Fine. But he told Rolf, the guy isn't blunt. He doesn't fit in. He's moving around too much. He doesn't look like anybody else. So they said, here's what you got to do. You hold your horn in one position, just like Rolf, you do not move. Make sure you know, you got your belt up and that this is the way it's going to work or you're not going to do it. Wow. And so that was number one. Okay, so I just changed. Okay, fine. I wanted, I dug what the band was doing. I liked yeah. the sound. I wanted to be a part of this. I really wanted to do it. It was very challenging, but it seemed like this was a this would be a really cool thing to do. And um, I'm working through everything's working out okay. And about week three, we're in Rolf's barn, and we're playing through the Scarlatti. His father did a lot of arrangements. Mm-hmm. Uh, these Scarlatti pianos. And we were doing this one uh, Scarlatti, particular Scarlatti piece. And it was a really tricky second trumpet part. And I had to do all these trips. So I'm playing through, and I love drills. I just didn't have time to work here. And we're all stopped, said, where did drill? He said, I really didn't have time to work for this. I'm working on West Side Story. I'm working on this shite. I'm just I didn't. He said, have it by tomorrow or you're fine. <laughs> I was like, all right. <laughs> so the first, I was just so angry. I was so angry because I was working so hard. And I thought to myself, I said, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I sat in a big box. I worked on that for probably three hours. Mm. Came back the next day and nailed it. Nice. Just nailed it. Played it down. Nailed it. He looked at me and said, good. All right, you know, let's move on. And it was, I felt some satisfaction, but at the same time, I'm like, this is really safe. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you really must must have worked on this thing. 
But that's the way it was. You kind of were expected to be breaking your own records every time you walked in. That was expected. No one was going to say, hey, break out. You came in there and you were ready to get the mm -hmm. And what that taught me was something that well, I couldn't do. And now all of a sudden, um, I jump a hurdle. And that I carried through my whole life. That moment has affected me for the rest of the time I've been I've always said, no, I can do it. I can make it. And that constantly happens in that group. Yeah. Uh, you, you talk about getting angry. Your first reaction is the, and I can't imagine that anybody wouldn't. The amount of pressure you're under and, and not knowing if you're going to survive the day, right? Hmm. Um, but how many people have that kind of resolve that you showed. You think about people these days going for, who could survive that? And maybe that kind of atmosphere uh, doesn't exist or couldn't exist anymore. This shows an awful lot of grit to be able to, to do that. Well, that's kind of, that's kind of who I am. For me, I looked at the situation and I thought, well, it took one up. And that would earn respect. Rather than getting angry, saying you're asking too much, but if I one up by doing it, then uh, that that was a big leap. I mean, he was able to look at me and say, "All right, you're on board. You're." And I felt that. I also there was a big challenge where I, I was the only one walking out on stage with the West Side Story music. Everybody else oh. had it memorized and I would walk out on stage with the music. And it was another one of the things where Sam came up to me and said, You gotta memorize that. So I mean you can go out on stage and watch it. I didn't yeah. the music. So I remember I was I had a, <laughs> one summer there was a pool table in my ex wife's <laughs> basement of her home. It's like mm -hmm. a little candy. I had like two weeks. And I literally I remember walking around that pool table listening and playing and keeping the thing on my face going through it over because I was gonna learn this. I was gonna learn this to the film. It's another thing where I walk out there bearing on the team. Yeah, I want this to be I don't want this to be one guy. Yeah. I want to be able to move the band. I want to be able to do this. And once again it you just this is the guy for the gig. This is the right guy for the gig. That's what they were thinking every time I think good. So you're getting it from Rolf. You're getting some from Sam. What about the other guys at that time? Were they? Or did you get any encouragement along the way, or was it all four against one? Or no, it was for my first year. I really felt like there were some tours where I was just walking away because they had all been. And Marty was in the band at the time. He was with the uh, They were all seasoned pros. They could get on a bus and drive for you know. 18 hours, get off, play a concert. I mean, it was insane to me to be driving around in a mobile home. And sometimes we're playing with a basketball hoop literally right here on an elevated stage in the gym. The next day, we're, in, we're playing with a Detroit Symphony. It was just that kind of insanity. And they were all pretty seasoned at it. And sometimes they were playing, trying to just figure out how to do it. It took about a year. So, I mean, yeah, they would kind of disappear, and I'd just go back to my hotel room and sit there and say, all right, what did we do wrong here? How can I make this better? For me, one to be, you know, a part of that. One mm -hmm. to have that in my fingers. It's, you know, just, you know, have the ease of being able to travel. It was a challenge, but I really wanted it. It was crazy. It was, just, it was interesting and interesting. There was so much fun about it. I, I really wanted that. So, you know, that was part of it. Yeah. And you got it? Yeah, I did. I became a part of this thing, and I knew it wasn't going to last forever. But I knew what we were doing was crazy great. I knew, I mean, it was hard, and man, there were moments that I wanted to quit. There were moments that I was just tearing my hair out. There were moments. Mm -hmm. I was having so much fun and laughing so hard that it was like you when you're back in high school. It was, just, like I said, the best of times and the worst. And you had to take all of it. You had to be there and understand that 
someday I will look back at it. And at least I'll have the experience in this moment for us. We were doing it better than you. Yeah. Here it is. Here it is. Yeah. yeah. So I was always on my mind. Yeah. Uh, how long are you in the group? Eight years. So I heard Empire Live the first time, 89 or 90. So you would have been there. In that, and you guys came and played uh, with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra, or at least were the—I think you were with the orchestra. Were you in the band? No, I was. Uh, I had just moved to Indy uh, during that time, and a band director friend of mine said, "Hey, uh, there's this group called Empire." And honestly, I, I hadn't had a clue at that point. And uh, I think you guys started with Bolero out out in the audience, <laughs> and. Yeah. Uh, Am I remembering that right? It was. Is that I, I don't know that we played. I don't know that we played Bolero. We played. I, I remember walking in the audience with something. It was like a Gabrielli thing or something like that. Or, yeah, Rolf and you, I think, were out, and but Rolf was right in front of me, playing. Wow. Yeah, it was the first time I'd seen a G trumpet or, or whatever he was playing at the time. Right. And oh, what a great show! Yeah, it's, I just remember. It was phenomenal. It's like oh, my, my eyes had been opened at that point, and then and back then, of course, they were still albums that you sought out, you know, right. or CDs. But uh, I started to find what I could. Uh, but yeah, I, I look back at that and uh, Canadian. You guys did. I mean, it's not an understatement to say that you guys have contributed both groups tremendously to not just brass quintet repertoire, but just how to put on a show, how to entertain. You could have yep. come out in a semicircle with stands and played, and it would have been great. Tearing, both groups tore down that fourth wall, and I think you know that was just brilliant to do it that yeah, way. We actually dealt with a lot of criticism. I think both groups did. I can't speak for the Canadians, but there would be ensembles, which I will not do, who would say, this isn't real brass band. You know, you mm -hmm. got a music written for the brass band. How could we do Every once in a while, we did the Ewald, we did the Etler one, believe it or not. And, uh, but it was all transparent. Right. And so people would say, first of all, you're setting the brass quintet back hundreds of years because we want new music. We want, you want to be able to come out and, and show people what real brass quintet music is. And, you know, and, and I remember Stan and Rolf sitting there shaking their heads saying, how, how are we supposed to live in Nobody's good. Nobody's going to want to sit there and hear that. Yeah. And they were right. <laughs> and the Canadians were the first ones to really put on those shows. They were great. I mean, I went to see the Canadian brass, and I couldn't believe it. I yeah. couldn't believe they They would get out there and sing falsetto. They would joke around, and they'd play these really beautiful Bach things. And, I mean, that to me was just, look at that. That is, you know, compared to the New York, you know, brass quintet with Bob Hagel. Right. Aaron just... This was like a, a step in, in, in a, another direction. It was just mind-blowing what these guys were doing. And then Empire kind of jumped on top of that and said, yeah, well, now we're going to do it this way. And we became the rock and roll group. They were kind of the elderly station, and they had a lot of kind of dressed up in leather. We let our hair grow. They wanted that rock and roll feeling in order to be the office <laughs> And so we go out there and just be dangerous and nuts, playing as loud as possible. Every time we get a concert, two and a half hours. Mm. An organ and brass concert. And I had to look out in the audience and these people were like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Rolf was feeling good. It's like, get this piece up, let's go. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> it was that kind of feel was that great we were all into it yeah okay so go back a couple of minutes you made a, a statement i'm thinking okay what if you put the ingolf doll in front of an audience right. i guess all five people are going to be thrilled that you played <laughs> right. that piece and then saying that you set the qu brass quintet back a few hundred years <laughs> let's look at what the brass quintet looked like in 1650 right oh, i know right <laughs> you know, let's see was what the tuba look like or what did the horn look like right right uh, so it's kind of a silly statement but look, yeah I, I think i've come to realize that you guys gave permission just to play great music it didn't have to be commissioned by some great composer for brass quintet to show their compositional skills it was great transcriptions, both groups, 
Um, and oh, did you do any of those? Did you do any arranging at some point? I did not, and that was the thing that you signed off on. I mean, it, I have to say, I mean, Rolf and Sam would always—they were like Lennon and McCartney, and we could come in with ideas, but they would have their names on the. They would split the royalty. That mm -hmm. was the way. It and I knew that when I went in, and I said, "Okay." So if I came with an idea or an arrangement, it would be like, well, we'll take this into consideration. <laughs> and I'd do something else with it. I'd do an arrangement of Bernstein on the town street, which we actually played once, but it was impossible to get permission from the Bernstein oh, to right. do it. So I couldn't publish it. I couldn't do it. But it was fun for me to do it. Rolf actually played second on it. It was the only time. <laughs> That we that uh, Rolf played second in the group. We did it on one concert, yeah. and uh, and that was the only time we played that. I've I've written some pieces for some jazzy kind of thing. Um, now the only thing I ever did was uh, put on a happy birthday yeah. on one of the CDs. So you've auditioned. You've you said it took you like a year to settle into the group. <clears throat> so once you're there. Who's the next person to, to enter the group? Marty left. Marty uh, left the group and joined, went back to Vancouver. Uh, he, I, I think he just had enough of the road. He had enough mm -hmm. of on, I don't know how many years he was with the Canadian. And it's hard. It's really hard. My first year with the group, I think we did almost 100 concerts. Mm -hmm. And the way we were traveling, we were literally on the road. We did it again for four or six weeks. Mm -hmm. you know, come home for a week and then disappear on a Midwest tour, riding around you know, Winnebago for a month. It was really insane. And he had a family. And after years of it, I think he just got tired of it. Yeah. And he just decided to go back and, and he won the job in Vancouver, went back, moved back there. And he's very happy. Yeah. And, um, then Eric came. That's when my life. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, I'm, I'm curious. I'm kind of wondering as you're seeing somebody new come in, if you're like wanting to take them off to the side and say, here's what you need to expect. You know, because I've been there, done that. Don't step in this hole. Right. But okay. So how did your life change? Uh <laughs> I love Eric. I really do, man. We had, I, I mean, I had such a good time. I mean, Marty was fun. Marty and I would room together. Mm -hmm. and, and but Eric was on like a different I was the youngest guy in the group. Mm. Um, and then Eric came and all of a sudden he was the youngest guy, but we were closer. Mm -hmm. So uh, for me, trying to be late with whatever was going on, I'm still young guy, Eric comes in. And then uh, you know, when I started palling around with him, anybody who comes into a group that small is going to bring their own kind of thing. And then it changes the group. And all of a sudden the group becomes a little different because there's no time. So some guy will come in and start asking all these crazy great things as foreign solos. And, you know, he would be astounding. Marty was crazy. Mm -hmm. Eric would go out there and do these things. But then, when the concert was over, it got crazy. <laughs> 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 Which was so much fun for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that we did this. Now I had a guy that around with. And, uh, then we'd go out and hang out. And I was just laughing a lot. Yeah. When Eric joined the band. It became uh, just seeing his personality working with Rolf and the rest of the group. And he was a very positive guy. He mm -hmm. had a lot of energy. And he was like me in that, hey, I'm not going to do this forever. Let's make this really something special. And so um, we were always out there killing. It was, and he even brought more of that because he really would go out there and go for it. You want to sell the message of brass playing. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's always music, such a musical player. And, yeah. 
But it was, um, it, like I said, it was really different. And we're still in contact today. I miss him. I miss yeah. him. And when he left the group, uh, it really, everything. Yeah. But I, okay, so I want to back up a second. You said when a new guy comes in, it changes the group. This is just a quick sponsor break to remind you to check out Messina Covers for great custom cases. Eastman Winds and SE Shires for exceptional quality from the professional model to the beginner model. And of course, Pickett Blackburn, providing you with a multitude of options for mouthpieces and trumpets. Now, back to today's guest. Let's go back to how you changed the group. In retrospect, what did you, how did that group evolve with you there? Well, that's hard. That's hard for me to say because I wasn't in it before. So when I came in, I think they kind of wanted to mold me into Tim Morrison. And to some extent, I did that. I kind of played that role. I'm not as good looking as Tim. I'm a very very different player. But uh, you have better hair than he does. But Tim had a, this, this real mystique, and it was this way that he was very tall, and he looked like he walked out of a Hollywood movie set. And I just, I kind of came in there and wanted to do my own thing, but I had to conform, fit that mold. Mm-hmm. But I think I had a lot of other things I was doing at the time. I was cartooning at the time. I had a very disciplined personality in terms of more outgoing. I could sing on the CD. I was, I guess what I would say I brought to the group was uh, less uh, the seriousness in the sense that I could make everybody laugh. And uh, it, it, it kind of took maybe the group into a lighter direction. But I remember we'd laugh through sessions, sometimes recording sessions, and how often we could really do these things. And I, I'd like to think that I was kind of with the guy who's instigating that. And I, there are a couple of recordings, uh, and I don't remember the repertoire, but it's like a dark studio, everybody's in black. Uh, and I can't remember. That may have been Mark with the group at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, I'm thinking about recording sessions and what that was like. Uh, of course, when you're on the road playing pieces, that's the best way to prepare for the studio because you just know the rep inside and out, and you've played it everything about it. But did that make a difference when you got to the studio? Or was it? You, what you said makes perfect sense. And it's the way everybody else does it. If you're a rock and roll band or uh, even a comedian, you go out on the road, you form, you craft the show mm-hmm. and go into a studio. On stage, you put it. Uh, we did it the exact opposite. <laughs> really? We would all every summer we'd get together at Tangle and we were Tangle and run the Empire Bowl. The summers were the most stressful. It was mm. really tough. And we would create craft show. And we'd record it. We'd record this new music. And then we take then we take it out on the road. The first place we go is Japan. And because nobody in the United States would hear it. We take it to Japan. And the first 12 concerts were like, all right, which one of these pieces are we going to drop? I mean, how are we going to get through this? Do we need to take this repeat? I mean, we just go out there and, and be exhausted after these shows, but we yeah. kind of work out all those concerts. But it was after we recorded all the things. So recording the things is one thing. Maybe you can take takes. But then when you have to plan down the concert, that's when we would grab show, come back to the stage, sometimes to Europe. And we had the concert by about concert 12 or 13. Mm. Yeah. So it was weird. It was opposite. But that it actually kind of worked because then we could take the CD to Japan and they were, they loved the CDs. Yeah. And we could sell it while we were playing the tunes live. Yeah. You ever record a tune, then tour with it and be like, this is, you know, what we ended up with so much is so much better than what's on the CD. Yeah. I mean, things would, usually get faster we uh, just go out in the road we really work on the cds the cd would be nice and crisp but then halfway through the touring season the tune would be like four or five clicks faster and getting faster <laughs> this is 
we just play it over and over again. It's like a Broadway yeah. show. And we never yeah. rehearse. We just play it. We play concerts. And, uh, and as you're playing it, it just gets smoother. The Mozart was the, the biggest. Had that, that, you know, was when we would, we recorded the Mozart and we're probably just banging down the town trying to figure out, I think the switch now pieces because we're playing a lot of low stuff. Right. Then we took it out on the road. By halfway through, we were really roaring on stuff. And it was just, it became the second nature. Yeah. And a lot of times I would be thinking, oh, we should record it now. We could record it about 10 clicks faster. And it would sound you know, more exciting. You know, we were sound. I was listening uh, earlier today. I was actually listening to uh, uh, Dance of the Comedians. I think it was. Um, let me make sure that's right. Yeah, Dance of the Comedians. And uh, holy cow, I mean, that's kind of lightning fast already. And I'm so imagining, could that get any faster? And the precision, you guys just, it's so clean. And it's not just clean. I mean, it's musical. But you get the respect of brass players knowing just how how good you have to be to make it sound that clean. Was there great. was that tune. Rolf would do that on the road almost every performance. Mm. And he nailed it. Yeah, and to me, I was just, that was one of the times, I mean, Rolf would do things on stage where I'd almost have to put my hand down. I mean, mm. I just couldn't believe it. And that was one of the pieces. And uh, that's something that was special about what he could do. He could double tongue through those phrases, uh, and I could never understand him. Just watching, there's nothing about being in a group, and you're watching as Marty, Sam, Scott Hartman, mm -hmm. Eric, Roth, and Roth could be off his game, but one time we were in Fresno, California, and uh, Roth got everything stolen out of his hotel room. We landed. Yep. He went to the airport to pick up his girlfriend. He came back three hours later. Everything was gone. Everything. Yep. His horns. The only thing he left with his feet. Oh Everything gosh. was gone. And Rolf at the time was really he was so angry. But I said, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to the floor? I said, I'm not playing the parts. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, uh, no, nah, we're going to play. I'm going to make some phone calls. The next night we were on stage. He was playing in a borrowed tales with borrowed pumpkins, including mm. G. Pick. I don't know. I remember where he had it all He played the show from memory. Mm -hmm. Didn't drop a note. Wow. wow. <laughs> he kept, I mean, I'm just thinking this is going to be a I didn't know what I was going to do. I walked down the stage and my feet could focus. It was really unbelievable. And one of the tunes was that, you know, Dance of the Comedians. And he just wasn't faced by any of it. He was so driven. And he went out there, and he and I remember going up afterwards, and like I said, he didn't do much compliment. That was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it's unbelievable. He was smoking at the time. He was there, he said, yeah, he just that's the way he was i mean he was just even after he'd do something in a recording session that was unbelievable and yeah. he listened to it he just he kind of would it was almost like it just wasn't good enough it just wasn't good enough. Mm. and you could see that in him somehow there's some this fire underneath him that just, yeah it's got to be better than that uh but yeah yeah you mentioned scott uh, i'll let you know i'm uh i've got him on the calendar uh august 5th i get to talk to scott oh good and i'm really looking forward to that um i miss the opportunity uh to interview sam of course that's that was yeah. a tragic loss um but uh well and rolf too i mean a right. tragic loss for the trumpet community but uh okay so you're in the group you're having a great time but there's something that says to you inside uh, it's time to go right what was that was there an opportunity knocking on the door or you just decided it's time 
It was, it, yeah, it, it, things have changed. Um, Sam, I should say that Sam, Sam Palacio taught me so much. Um, you know, you mentioned his name. I mean, I can't leave him out of this discussion because he was uh, an essential part of that group. He's, I mean, Rolf had the energy. Sam handled the nuts and bolts. Rolf was a sports car. He drove the sports car. Sam put the sports car together <laughs> and made it uh, and made sure that you know we were communicating with record companies correctly. We trying to keep things, you know, making sure that we were set up at Boston University and, and that Columbia Artist Management was taken care of. All the nuts and bolts of that were all Sam. Sam really ran the show, Rolf drove mm-hmm. as fast as he possibly could and was an impressive <laughs> driver. Um, but what Sam taught me about music theory, what he taught me about jazz, what he taught me about discipline, what he taught me about pedagogy, all that stuff. I never saw anyone who was, who was so incredibly focused on being a great musician, not just mm-hmm. a teacher, just being the best music. For as good as he was, he'd be walking around airports with a mouthpiece, buzzing mouthpiece. He could. He'd be sitting there trying to figure out how to get better, how to get better at jazz, how to get better at mm-hmm. how to get better at what's the next CD we can do that he'd be really not even doing nothing. It was crazy. I was inspired by everything. Yeah. Sam was really special. And uh, he left the group. And yep. That's really what changed everything. Mm-hmm. And I remember Eric and I sitting in a diner, and Sam announced the leave. And uh, we were shaking our heads. And because this left Rolf in control. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know what was going to happen. We were, oh, well, we'll just stay on it and try to figure out, see if we can direct Rolf and see if we can take over Rolf. And uh, it didn't happen. And it just kind of got crazier and things started coming apart a little bit more. And all of a sudden we're out of the year. Once that education went, Tanglewood went in the summer. And that was a big part of our income. Yeah. And uh, Telark was starting to scratch their heads. And now that Sam had left and trying to figure out well, what, how we can do this, how we can put this together. That combination of Rolf and Sam made for a really great working mm-hmm. machine, and now that wasn't it. So Eric left. I mean, I think Scott left after. He, mm-hmm. And Sam left. Scott said, well, I can do this anymore. I'm done. He'd been in the group for a long time. Mm-hmm. Then Eric left. I was the last one to break the group. I just couldn't do it. And I was just going to stop, go try to freelance and do something. I had I had enough of the road anyway. I was ready yeah. for something else. It was really hard. And um, and it just seemed like I wasn't really sure what the group was about anymore. It didn't it, it didn't seem to have that, that focus that we had. And so uh, that's when the door opened in Dallas. Dave Brooks was off the group and down spent a year playing principal. They they could hire me and hire me. Yeah. And so I did, and then I uh, I ended up staying there. Did it seem but, like a, a walk in the park compared to what you'd been doing for eight years? Oh, no. You mean playing-wise? Yeah. It was very different. Uh, when I walked out on stage, one of the first concerts I, I played with the Dallas Symphony was Symphony Fantastique. It was about 20 minutes to stay on stage. You don't do anything. <laughs> So I'm sitting there on stage now. I'm used to playing two hours straight, two hours plus. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting on stage and we get to that movement, just the two movements that I'm doing. And my lips start swelling up. So I grab my mouthpiece and I'm pushing my lip, my mouthpiece into my lip. Oh gosh. From swelling. It's like yeah. I'm I'm just not used to sitting here on stage and it was really very different. Then I come yeah. in and within 
like eight or ten bars that was starting to feel okay, but it was really physically very difficult. Also, you're, I'm playing on different equipment. I'm using a bigger mouthpiece, and uh, it's much louder, and it's a, it's just a really difficult thing. Mm-hmm. I've done it before, so I came back quickly. Sure, but um, but it's really not the same. Yeah, it's really not the same. Yeah. Um, what was it like uh, for you to turn in your notice with Empire? Was that well? I mean. You've got different people in there. Rolf is the last one. How do you tell him you're gone? Yeah, it was weird. It was in a recording session. It was the last CD I made. It was this Celtic CD yeah. thing that we did. Very bizarre, very strange CD. And I loved Rolf, it. Oh, you did? Yeah. It went, now, I'm not talking about passages. I'm talking about the, the, the Celtic. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. like that one? Yeah. Because <laughs> to me, it was it seemed like, uh, and that's what Rolf was. Rolf, Passages was Rolf's baby. Rolf mm-hmm. wanted to do this for so many years until our time is okay to do it. And that became really a pretty big hit for us. Mm-hmm. And then he came at them with this outfit. And they said, eh, I don't know. But, uh, they said, okay, well, let's go with it. And it was very, was all these different kind of things that written a riverbank kind of style, all kinds of things. And um, I thought, you know, this would be a good thing. So I told him at the end of the season. Yeah. And the whole group was new, and they were all great players. Yeah. But uh, I think he knew it was coming, and I just, I said, look, thanks, I'm, gonna, I'm done, Dallas and you never it's weird you never quit without some place to go because you get an argument with Rolf then all of these writing things so you just <laughs> didn't want that kind of thing so I knew I could make this bridge if Rolf all of a sudden said well I gotta talk to you about money because you didn't listen to this I don't know so um, I made sure that Dow the Dow and he said Huh. Okay. So you still have the band credit card? I said, uh, yeah, yeah, I did. Got out my wallet to keep it. Go buy yourself a nice pair of cowboy boots. And <laughs> did you? I said, yeah. I said, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I went and got a nice pair of boots, cut the card up, and that was. Oh, that's was, awesome. <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was kind of cool. I, I didn't expect that. But he, I think, like I said, I think he knew it was coming. And that Mark jumped in, I think, at that time. Oh, no, it was Mark. Yeah. And uh, that didn't work out. Yeah. And then uh, I think Mark Reese came in after that. And Mark had been studying with us for years. What a perfect. Yeah. He, he, he's been in the group. He was the second Trump in the group for the longest. Yeah. Yeah, I interviewed him uh, last year, too. And, you know, well, first of all, an amazing player. Yeah. I love his sound. Great. Love his sound. Yeah, just a nice guy. But yeah, when you said the other trumpet, that's exactly yeah. how he described himself, too. But right. Um, wow. Uh, this has been great. Um, oh, thank you. You know, thank- I wish I had pushed record and caught all that. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Can you do that all again? <laughs> we push record this. I, I have a fear. I, I often I keep glancing up in the corner to make sure that the recording's still going oh. because I'm thinking it, it's going to crash just when you say that thing that is like pure gold. I've been recording here at home, and lately I've got Premiere Pro on this computer, and I thought, okay, I'm going to do a couple different camera angles. You know, so I set up like three different camera angles, and then I got another device, a Zoom H2, which I have over. Oh now. yeah. So I'm, but I got to hit all four before I play, and then when I stop, I got to turn them all off. Right. And then hit them all again. Right. And I can't tell you how many times I get to the editing when I get to put it all together. It's like, ah, oh, I didn't push record on this. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Thank all you right. again for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank and, you uh, for sharing everything. I, I, um, well, it's fun for me too. I still feel like a kid in a candy store doing stuff like this. Yeah, good. So. Good. You're good at it. You're good at it. Don't keep doing it. You're just going to oh. get better and better. And I think this is, I think these are important. You can come back and interview different things. Different things. You can have another subject. It's like a new. Yeah. 
take another trumpet player and say, oh, let's talk about high notes. Let's talk about low notes. Let's talk about this or that. Well, I want to recognize what you just said. I, I appreciate that you complimented my style on this because honestly, um, I just feel like I'm having conversations with people, you know? But but it's not that. And, and there is something to what you're asking, the questions that you're asking that make it fun oh. for, for me and I imagine fun for your other guests because they're good questions. If you well, get thanks. bad questions, it just, it just goes on forever. And it's like, oh, yeah. it really doesn't make any sense. How am I going to answer this? So all your stuff is just really perfect. Well, thank you. Uh, I, for University of Indianapolis, I filled out a, a little online interview. There's just this morning. Uh, it's for oh. school school paper, and the last question was, if you could interview anybody, living or dead, and I, I actually answered, I loathe questions like this. <laughs> it's true. And then I went on because, and I changed it because I don't want to have to pick one. There's right. so many, but right. it was that's the kind of question I try to avoid. It's like, hey Jeff, what size mouthpiece do you play? Right. Well, Nobody cares really about that sort of thing, right? Right, right. You know, well, yeah, I mean, right. some people do, but that's not this. That's not this. Yeah, show. It, 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 it's not this topic, and yeah. you're able to focus in on one topic and get everything out of yeah. that topic, yeah. and I think yeah. that's great. Perfect. Okay, hey, All right. again, thank you. Stay healthy, and please. Thank you for the shirt. I didn't get to say anything about the shirt, so should I say something about the Beautiful. shirt? Yeah, well, you just did. Oh. It is okay. the best thing well, you I'll, could I'll, do. I'll, I'll say I did an interview with you. Take a picture of you. That would that would be great. That would okay. be great. Post that on your Facebook page or Instagram right. or whatever. So, Will do. Cool, man. All right. Take care. Take care. Thank you. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that's where today's interview ends, but there's more to be heard. I excerpted one or more significant stories from this interview, and those are available exclusively from my Patreon patrons. You can find out more about how to receive that benefit and others at patreon.com slash studio HFL. Another reminder to visit Apple Podcast and to leave both a star rating and a review, and please visit the Studio HFL YouTube channel and subscribe. Thanks again for joining me today, and don't forget that you can access all of the interviews from the beginning to today's by visiting SoundCloud. This has been a production of Powell Music and is supported by the generosity of show sponsors including Messina Covers, Eastman Winds, S.E. Shires, and Pickett Blackburn. Once again, I'm your host, Larry Powell. I'm grateful you spent some time with me here today. Be sure to come back next week to visit with another terrific guest. Have a great day, and see you next time.